You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocalist of Cryptopsy, and you're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. Last night was another incredible Thirsty Thursday virtual hang. So much fun. Huge shout-out, massive thanks to my bassist, Olivier Pinard, who also plays for Cattle Decapitation and Vengeful. He was there as my co-host. It was a blast. If you missed it, well, that's your fault. You should have been there. Every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I hang out with a bunch of amazing people on Zoom, and we talk all about our lives. We talk about music, and of course, we talk about some craft beer. You should join us next week. The link is available in the description of this podcast. This is the last Spotlight on Unique Leader Records episode. I've had such a blast doing these for the past five weeks. Unique Leader Records is one of the best extreme metal labels out there right now. I cannot support them enough. I cannot tell you that enough. Until July 12th, that means you have two more days to go to the Unique Leader Indie Merch Store. And you could save 10% by using the promo code VOXANDHOPS. That's V-O-X-A-N-D-H-O-P-S when you are checking out. And you will save 10% on your purchases. Up there right now, they have sick pre-orders from my brothers in Cytotoxin and Ingested. They also have some great stuff from Stillbirth, from Catalepsy. Super stoked about all their upcoming releases. And you can help support those bands and save 10% at the same time. Do it. Support extreme music. Speaking of Catalepsy, I am super stoked to be able to play another one of their songs. Here is No Rest, No Peace, taken from their album Terra Mortus Est, which is going to be released on July 31st via Unique Leader Records. As always, turn it up to 11.
and catalepsy does not fuck around. The Russian brutal death overlords never disappoint. I am all about them. Massive shout out to catalepsy. I would love to have you on the podcast one day. It would be an absolute pleasure. If catalepsy wasn't on your radar before, well, they absolutely should be now. Check it out. Pre-order that shit. Support extreme music. On today's episode, I'm very proud to be with Jamie Graham, one of the main dudes behind Unique Leader Records, and he's also the vocalist of Viscera. Here it is, Vox and Hops, episode number 162. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today I'm with Jamie Graham of Unique Leader Records and Viscera, and I'm super stoked to be with you because uh, all throughout this month I've been doing a spotlight on Unique Leader Records, and I've really been enjoying that. Uh, I had a chance to play a bunch of really, really fantastic extreme music thanks to this relationship, and I'm really stoked about that. So uh, let's start with a hard question first. Uh, how did you cope with uh, COVID-19? How did you cope with social isolation? And now this new problem that i'm personally wrestling with is uh how to approach deconfinement um yes good question um i mean we, we all work remotely so we've been trying to crack on as usual the best we can uh, a lot of bands have had uh, some releases put back a lot of tours cancelled that kind of thing so it's been very hard for them um and we've obviously had to rejig the whole release schedule accordingly but um i mean for some campaigns i guess that's been a blessing in disguise because it's given uh, a little bit more time for certain things but it's set a lot of bands back um and obviously they you know a lot of them if they did have jobs to go back to a lot of those jobs aren't you know either aren't running at full capacity or maybe not at all or uh, there's obviously the furloughed thing as well so generally a bit of a tough time for everybody um and obviously with tours not going on it, it makes the whole promotion cycle of an album completely different to how it was before um but in terms of readjusting um i think everyone seems to be chomping at the bit to go back and see a live show or either to play a live show, like the hunger's definitely there. Um, so I'm taking that as a, a silver lining to a very shit-stained cloud in that, um, you know, I think a lot of local scenes and smaller gig circuits particularly were suffering from quite low attendances for a while. Um, certainly in comparison to when I was going to shows, uh, you know, two or three times a week or whatever, which was the case for about 10 years, I guess. So... I think we'll probably see a rise in attendance, you know, albeit people might be a little bit more careful about how they physically interact with people. But um, then again, you might, you know, you might see a few beers in, they'll, they'll be completely back to normal, I guess. So here's hoping. <laughs> That's true. And I hope that, uh, you know, a lot of these venues that we tend to tour, I hope that they step up their sanitary oh God, yeah. approaches to their, their restrooms and... <laughs> That that would be an absolute blessing in disguise. Yeah, you, you might see like completely shithole venues in terms of the performance part and then go into these pristine toilets that have like Dyson hand dryers and all that stuff. But <laughs> who knows? We'll see. I think a lot of venues have been closing down as well. So um seems to be a bit of a survival uh, race for everybody. Um, and everyone's like trying to get back to normal as soon as possible but a lot of people don't really know when that's gonna gonna be in terms of you know even planning tours i mean there's a lot of tours appearing at the start of the year um and tours that are getting announced for the end of the year but i wouldn't be surprised if we see further postponements for stuff 
You guys just announced a monster of a tour, actually. Uh, we probably did, the, yeah. the biggest, the biggest metal tour of twenty twenty one at this point. It's uh, <laughs> you guys, the longest one, certainly. Fuck. <laughs> you guys, uh, Black Dahlia Murder, and help me out on this. Rings of Saturn. That's right. Yeah. That's a dope, dope, dope lineup. Yeah, it's going to be a uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty insane. Um, it's more like the length of the tour itself that's boggling my mind I, I saw the when we first got the email routing through you know you get like the first paragraph and then you see the first dates you're like expecting you know the usual 20 dates kind of thing and man I was just scrolling down this email and it just kept going and going <laughs> and going I was like well you've got to be kidding me but uh yeah it's certainly going to be it's going to be a blast I'm sure we just got to make sure we look after ourselves and uh you know a lot of people ask how I do the band and the label at the same time especially on tour but I, I think it's actually um if anything, it's it's a good thing in that there's so much time on tour, as you probably know, um, when, you know, you'll get to a venue and you'll have like five or six hours before you're even sound checking or whatever. And then there's the time where people are either getting drunk or they're not. And the people that aren't are usually looking for something else to do. And that's usually when I'm sitting like buried into my laptop or whatever. So, you know, I actually find it quite easy to work on tour, to be honest. So six months, uh, sorry, not six months, six weeks away. Uh, should be fine absolutely and that's uh it is a good thing to to keep those hours i'm i'm baffled at how some of these people i tour with oh. just sit there and are just refreshing their facebook or their instagram yeah. account just and dying like, slowly. you guys want to go for a walk you guys want to go do something and they're yeah. like no i'm okay i'm just gonna stay here it's okay i was like okay you know we're only you know we might never come back here <laughs> you'll ask someone about where they've visited on tour or whatever and they'll say oh, i don't know man i just saw the venue or whatever and it's like well that's a that's a trip wasted, man. That's somewhere that you you might never see again. So, yeah, I'm all for uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's that's their choice. That's their choice. I'm, yeah. I'm more of a tour tourism, and then with the craft that beer makes thing, sense. I'm always on the hunt for <laughs> some craft beer. Vox and Hops is all about hanging out with my metal friends, talking about their lives, music, and craft beer. Uh, what beer do you have on your side there, James? Uh, I'm drinking a Brax beer, Oxford Gold. I mean, it's, it says here it's a golden beer with citrus aromas and a zesty fruit finish. I mean, I think it's pretty... Um, I wouldn't say it's a craft beer. I don't think Oxford Gold is, but Brax beer is a pretty big brewery here. And a lot of these uh, kind of fruity, citrusy beers do tend to taste the same. It's like a, that golden sort of pale ale type taste awesome pretty good i'm not a big beer drinker to be honest oh i appreciate you sharing a brew with me i am going to be drinking trailway brewing company this is a brewery from uh fredericton new brunswick this is their luster it is a session ipa it has been hopped with citra el dorado and galaxy hops it clocks in at four percent i'm gonna crack this uh tell me about uh, your relationship with beer you, you say you're not a big beer drinker. Take me back to your first beer, being from, yeah. I love, I love beer and I love the taste of beer, but the problem is it doesn't love me very much in that if I drink a lot of it, I'm just bloated as fuck and I'm just farting constantly. So um, my missus isn't too fond of that. But to be honest, I, I do enjoy it when, when I get the opportunity to, to try like a, like a new beer. And I, I can see totally why you're into, like you said, when you're in different countries or whatever on tour, you like to try and find new ones because there is that discovery process. Um, but yeah, I mean, my first relationship with beer was probably, you know, the typical kind of meeting up with friends when you're too young to drink and just getting your hands on something because it's got alcohol in it, you know. And uh, to be honest, I hated the taste of beer at the beginning, but 
It's an acquired taste, isn't it? It's it's like everything. This is why Vox and Hops and Metal go so well together. I love discovering That's new extreme music. I love discovering new beers. That first time that you hear, you know, I remember the first time I heard Cryptopsy, and I've spoken about this on the podcast. It was too much for me, and I didn't like it. Yeah. But, you know, here we are down the line, and I just have to get more and more and more of it. Yeah. Uh, cheers. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and I just I have to say a uh, shout out to Daniel Sauvé from Trans Brew and Ashlag for hooking me up with this brew to share with you right now. It's nice. It looks like a nice color. I mean, obviously, you guys listening can't see what I'm seeing, but the yes, color is like... Beautiful it looks like pineapple juice or something. Yes, exactly. A hazy, delicious session IPA. Cheers. Oh, yeah, this is dope. You can drink this all day. Absolutely amazing. Super uh, tangy, juicy. Um, slightly creamy for a 4%. Great mouthfeel. Absolutely love it. Uh, Trailway have just started being distributed here in Montreal via Ashlag and Transbrew. So I'm super stoked about that. And you guys should get your hands on this if you can. Uh, let's touch into the a classic Vox and Hops question at this point. Uh, tell me about the soundtrack of your youth when you were growing up in your parents or guardian's house. What music was playing when you were not in control of the music? I was, I was quite lucky in that my, my dad had quite a a broad taste in music um so i got initiated into i guess the greats makes me sound like an old fart but you know the stuff that i grew up with in terms of like the pop world before rock was introduced was kind of everything from like david bowie to the beatles to prince and michael jackson and then sort of he was into a lot of um kind of disco and funk stuff and i got a good ear for you know for for, for rhythm and sort of looking listening out for certain types of of beats and the way that the production's used and things like that. He used to bring that to, to my attention and try and nerd out. And when I was younger, I'd sort of just be like, whatever, you know, like it glazes over a bit when you're a kid, you sort of, you know, you, you nod at your dad and you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, and you're taking everything in. It's like, <laughs> but then after a while, certain tunes come back and you're like, oh, actually, I, I like this one. You find yourself humming along, you find yourself sort of acquiring your own taste um, and developing, you know, your own sort of listening habits, as it were. So in terms of metal, I guess um, my first discovery of it would have been, I had a friend that I used to go around to his house quite often um, just to sort of play like various sort of board games, video games, what have you. And he had an older brother who was a complete metalhead and he had like posters of, um, I guess it was, I think, from, if I remember specifically what it was, he had a, a Rust in Peace, giant Rust in Peace poster, a big... Arise poster um, and one of the Iron Maiden ones because I just remember walking into his room and looking and there was this giant Eddie looking at me, you know. I was kind of fixated on the imagery because I was quite into comic books at the time as well. Um, And it was that sort of slightly restricted area of like, oh, is this a bit kind of, you know, should I be looking at this? Am I going to get in trouble for this or whatever? And it was that kind of naughty dark side of the music that tempted me in because... When I first listened to metal itself, it would have been the more melodic side, we'd call it now, you know, like traditional metal. Um, I guess Metallica would have been the first one I got into in terms of actually kind of voluntarily putting something on and listening to it and singing along with it and, you know, calling myself a metalhead in that respect. But the ones that changed me in, like into full-on metalheads would be Pantera and Burn My Eyes by Machine Head it was like kind of 93 to 94 period um, and I was kind of just prepping for sort of like school exams and shit like that and that was just a game changer because at, at school at the time it was like the beginning of new metal and I wasn't 
that into new metal apart from I really like Deftones, but I kind of consider them in a grey area of new metal, like more kind of atmospheric or whatever. What's ironic is I've actually grown to like bands like Korn a lot more now than I did then. I was kind of, you know, it was cool to like Korn when I was, you know, an older teenager or whatever, but there was always something that was like, there's got to be something heavier. And there was this whole world that I had no idea existed, which was the death metal world. And when I got to about 16, uh, I was opened up to all sorts of bands, um, you know, from sort of the first wave of death metal, like the Morbid Angels and, the, you know, the Deicides and Cannibal Corpse and the, the stuff that I guess everyone would get into. But it was that kind of second wave, like crossover period, you know, bands like Suffocation and stuff like that, where there was more just... Ugh, just it just made me just want to make that stank face, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was when I just kind of became obsessed with it. It was like, okay, this is not only what I want to do for a living, but like this is what I kind of want to do creatively as well. Because um, I went into the music industry already quite young, at 18. I was working for a pop label called One Little Indian Records, and they had stuff like Bjork and uh, Skunk and Nancy and stuff like that. It was quite a kind of broad variety of stuff. Um, but even then I was kind of trying to convince the owner Derek to sign this really heavy stuff and he was all about it man because he used to play in the Flux of Pink Indians which was like a really kind of influential band um, and he'd signed like Hot Snakes and Rocket from the Crypt and all sorts of shit but when I played him the metal stuff he was just like this is just even for me this is too heavy you know so there's definitely a moment like a eureka moment where a little light comes on and you sort of get it because I didn't admittedly you know, Pantera was about as heavy as I went. Um, and then I heard Decapitate and I was like, oh, that's like, that's like Pantera and... They're so close. It's like Meshuggah and it's slightly heavier and it's like, oh, what else is there? And I kind of worked my way back. So I guess I came into it on the second wave of death metal, you know, um, the kind of suffocation era period, you know, because the first wave, I was too young. Eric's wave, basically. And that was the beauty of it, you know, when we... Um, when we started working together at Unique Leader, um, you know, Eric already had this massive legacy of the label that, uh, you know, that he'd built. But he was also really keen to sign a lot of other bands uh, coming out of sort of, you know, just coming out the gates as well. Um, so we used to talk all the time about who's doing what and what they sound like. Oh, this sounds like this and they sound just like this. And yeah, it's a whole world of shit. It's great. That's what happens with generations, right? Yeah, all, the, all the kids that grew up listening to that first wave of unique leader bands are now old enough and physically capable enough to be inspired by them and play it and then create something new. And here they are. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like, I'll give you an example, like explaining to um, when, uh, when Luca from Mental Cruelty, who's like a, just a beast of a dude, like he's only about 23 years old, I think, but he's like six foot nine. Um, and he was uh, talking about all guttural vocals and like he was obsessed with them and like he was obsessed with Phil Bozeman and Mitch Lucker and all that when he was a teenager. And I just sort of had this picture of like this MySpace kid who was gigantic with this big fringe kind of practicing his gutturals. And, <laughs> and then I explained to him that, uh, that Matthew, um, who's like the president of the label, um, basically invented the guttural style of vocals when he was doing Discourge. And when he did it at, at the time, everyone was like, what the fuck is this? You know, he was, he's always laughing with me about it, how like, it's ironic that we've got so many brutal death metal bands that have that sort of super, super guttural, low gurgly, brutal sound. And when Matthew was doing it, everyone was like, there's someone flushing the toilet, you know, like what's going what on? What the fuck so, is this? 
Yeah. When I was explaining to all these, you know, the newest singers, like, this is the guy who invented that style of music, you know, not that style of music, that style of vocals. They almost didn't believe me. It was like they had to sort of do a bit of fact-checking or whatever. And he's just so humble about it. And it's like, that was the beauty of it, that he was talking to these guys about bands they'd never heard of, um, you know, playing them stuff like Deeds of Flesh or, um, you know, sort of the more sort of obscure side of stuff like you know, stuff like on comatose or stuff on relapse or just the more, the really, really, really brutal stuff. And it's funny, it's like there was this whole generation of kind of MySpace kids that grew up on, I guess, the, the second wave of deathcore that kind of went into metalcore, you know, um, which for me has kind of, that's evolved into what's defining the deathcore sound now. Like it used to be stuff like Despised Icon, but now it's more that Whitechapel suicide silence era that kind of defined the genre in my eyes. So you've got this, I guess it would be a third wave or maybe even, well, it'd be the fourth wave, I guess. Who knows? Lots of waves, but you've got people <laughs> listening to much, much heavier stuff, the kind of stuff that Eric was signing um, and stuff that's kind of a legacy in our catalogue. But they were, they grew up on the more, you know, they might have been a kid through the new metal generation and then a teenager through the metalcore generation and then young 20s into the deathcore movement and now they're getting into their mid-20s, early 30s and they're starting to develop a taste for brutal stuff. And a lot of these people are in bands, so that's kind of developing this whole new wave of bands that's coming through like Volvodynia and Ingested and, um, I mean, the list's literally, you know, it's countless now, almost to the point where I think the scene's probably going to have a huge shift again towards something else because it kind of feels like now things are starting to repeat themselves a little i don't know what you think yeah whenever that happens it has something fresh has to come push the boundaries shadow of intense style where they are bringing they're bringing in even more influences from outside of play outside of the metal world that band is so killer that band is so killer. yeah i'm, I'm all about them uh let's let's dance into the label world what is the best way for a band to get noticed by a record label? Are we talking just from like, uh, what's the incentive to sign them? Or uh, in terms of like, just... Because I think for me, there's two ways of thinking about signing a band. You've got like the personal taste approach, and then you've got the, I'm running a business approach. Let's cover both of those, and then I'll, I'll take the question somewhere else. Okay, so I, I, I guess to, for a short answer, the best thing is to try and find a, a, a good medium between the two, in that you want to find a band that, you perceive to be a marketable, successful band down the line, maybe even if it's two albums or three albums down the line. But on the same side, if, if, if you're just going with the incentive of the monetary side and trying to make this band big and trying to make money and you're not personally into the music and you're not fucking feeling the music and really getting into it, I think you're never going to quite represent that band in the best way. And that's not, you know, that, that's not really sort of serving the artist in their best interest, as so to speak. So... I think a band has to give me that stank face. That's the best way. You go. You, you first. You got to get the stank face, and then if the stank <laughs> like face it. is there, then you check the numbers and you look at the monthly streams and you see the touring history and you know how many lineup changes have there been and is the main person that because there's always one main person in the band that's like the go-to. Be it you know there's a conduit through a manager or whatever, but they always speak to usually one person. Um, quite often you can have situations where the band is incredible and they've got all the potential in the world but they just can't hold a lineup together um and that's been detrimental to quite a lot of bands careers that we've that we've had um 
by the same token, you've got bands that have had the same lineup from day one and they're fucking amazing and they just never had the right opportunity to show how good they are to people. So, you know, it is a tough one. But that's also part of the fun of the job is that discovery process. Um, I think if anything now, it's it's become a lot easier than it was, say, in the 90s. Um, even though, you know, bands were sending demos left, right and centre to labels, it would just be kind of piles of tapes and CDs. Whilst now, if you're looking for something specific, you can pretty much tailor exactly what you're looking for. I mean, there's even a, you know, if you go onto Spotify, for example, and you find a band you like, there's like a people also like section where you can see a bunch of other bands. And half the time I'm like, who's this? Who's this? Who's this? Um, And if you use a band that you do like and you do know quite well, usually the recommendations are pretty spot on, like... For example, if I if I went into Despised Icon, I would see a recommendation for like for Cryptopsy, for Suffocation, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it is a tough one. I mean, it, I think if it depends on who's trying to get you to sign who. You know, if you're doing it from a, like a failing label's point or a struggling label's point, like shit, we've got to you know sign a band quick to make some money, and I think that's when brand dilution starts to happen. Um, I think Unique Leader's main strength is, I think, when people see our logo on the back of something, irrespective of what subgenre it is in the death metal world or in the metal world, they know that it's going to be heavy as fuck. That's basically what we go for. Like, it doesn't need to be brutal death metal specifically, or death metal or whatever it is. But it is getting harder, man. I tell you, fuck. You know, a lot of bands are justifiably so going DIY because... You know, if you don't have a... Such as Shadow. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example. Um, I do still think, and I've had this conversation with a few people who actually, um, you know, who who know the band, and I've actually spoken to the band because we tried to sign them a while back, along with pretty much every other metal label, I think. Um, (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) I mean, the DIY thing is certainly... I wouldn't say it's uh, a better or worse approach than getting signed because the the, the model's shifted now. if you've got a really good fan base, a really solid fan base that's um, organically growing and you're touring hard and you've got, you know, a solid eye on your brand image and your merch and everything else. And like a lot of these guys in bands now really know the business and they know the way it works and the politics behind it. So they're savvy enough to do it themselves. Um, but I think when it comes to the bands that are more green and need to show, be shown how, how, how it all works... A lot of labels take advantage of that and they'll get bands to sign really shitty deals um, not knowing how those deals work. Um, and I think the, the deal model itself in terms of how bands are signed has changed, at least for us, a lot since even five years ago. Streaming has changed everything. It has, yeah. If, you, if you're signing a band to like a 2013 deal model, you're going to find it very difficult to, to recoup on investment. And I think the question bands are now asking are, it's usually something along the lines of like, why would I hand over the ownership of, of my material to a label for, you know, for five or six grand um, for the sake of getting like 20% of point zero zero three whatever the fuck it is, something meagre per play. So distribution's key now. If you don't have really solid distribution to get your physical product to market in new territories and, and really build it, then, you know, record labels are becoming obsolete. Um and there are certain labels that are building themselves just purely around digital service, um, which I just don't 
personally, I just don't agree with it. I just think it's ethically kind of shitty to do. Metalheads, we need to hold a product. It goes back to when you discovered metal, looking at those posters on the wall. There's something about interacting with a physical extreme artwork that's going to scare our next generation that's going to bring them in. You know, it's like when I was a kid, when you were mentioning that, I was thinking about going to the video store and staring at the howling yeah. in the horror section and being terrified just just of that and but it int- with when the head's coming out of the mouth exactly but being super intrigued so so if we just go to a purely digital platform the kids will never have that experience as a kid well they're never going to have that experience as it is you know because record stores are all going away but you should be able to still get vinyls i i, I think it's cool that tapes are coming back as like a more nostalgia item to have cds I don't know if people are still going to keep listening to CDs, but vinyls, I see, I see the appreciation and the point of it, having the big artwork. It's, it's, it's the closest thing to having those posters. And I mean, some, some people just go say that, you know, the numbers speak for themselves, like, you know, digital's just, there's a lot more people with Spotify on their phone or Apple Music or Deezer or whatever it is. Um, that being said, it, I think it's more of a generational thing. You've, you've got a lot of people in the kind of 30 plus bracket who have always been physical purchasers who are pretty much anti-digital they they don't see the value of having like a library in air quotes on your phone because it's not actually physically yours you're just paying for a service um but for other people they see it on the flip side it's like oh wow i get all of this music for only this much a month and i don't maybe i don't want it taking up all my storage i don't want it taking up all my shelving space and so it's, it's different strokes for different folks um but there's certainly a, pat- a pattern developing um, and I think you're right as far as the CD thing. Um, I think it's going to be more as like a convenience item, at least for us. I think we'll start focusing more on really killer vinyl um, and then including just a CD disc inside the vinyl for those who really want it. Because um, the chances are those people are either going to play it in their car or on a CD player at home. And if they want somewhere to keep that CD, they just put it in the vinyl. Um, I guess that would be the easiest argument but we'll just see what happens over the next few years i mean we keep asking people on our facebook group because we've got like a a thing called the unique legion where we kind of ask this sort of question like we we changed our cd formatting a few months ago uh based on the feedback that we got where we just said like should we keep making jewel case stock or should we flip over to a six panel digipack um just because i wanted to reduce the plastic we were making and Another thing with jewel cases is they always seem to crack and those little teeth that hold the CDs always pop out and it's just annoying. So yeah, it was unanimously in favour of the, the digipacks. So we just switched over to digipacks and so far we've had way less returns coming back, way less complaints of broken stock, um, but it hasn't really made a difference to CD sales in itself. Plus they look cooler. Yeah, they do look cooler. It's closer to that vinyl experience of the way it all unfolds. You, you said a bunch of really cool things, uh, as, as I asked you before, was that uh, building a relationship with a band, you sign a band, and you already know in your mind that you might take a loss for a few albums until you get your profit back. So that's really cool that you guys still do that, that you make relationships with a band. You're going to grow with this band together, and I think that's really, really cool. I think that's important for us at the stage that the label's at. Um, in terms of when Eric passed on, it was a case of do we, 
you know, do we basically assign all the catalogue over to a major and start something new and take the brand forward with none of the bands that Eric signed or do we take his legacy forward but focus it like as if we were running a completely new label um because i mean credit to eric man like the the first 20 years of the label he literally just did everything himself uh with the exception of like the first few years of the label he was doing it with um uh jacoby from deeds and um i think it was a couple of guys in in poland actually but that was like really 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 start uh you know i think two two albums in or something like that but long story short he did all the legwork and i think a lot of the um the pressure that fell on him to kind of give all of the bands the attention that they needed um you know that was tough that's that's going to be tough for just one person really so um you know now we've we've got a bigger staff now so we, you know what i like to do is trying to sign bands on a day-to-day um so say you know all the all the main important questions that you really need answers on feel free to ask me but if it's about videos if it's about this or if it's about that and there's a person for each thing it just makes it easier um because then that way people get answers quickly you know you you, you can give the argument of like oh yeah i'm the guy come to me i'll give you an answer for everything but then everyone starts coming to you and you need three weeks to reply to people so yeah fuck that and and your bands want to feel like they're being taken care of when you sign a record label. You you want to feel like you're important. It's 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 a relationship that you're growing together. You're in this business together. Or just be super super clear about the nature of the deal from the beginning. You know, because some bands do just want distribution. They don't want interference on the creative side. They don't want any outside interference. Sometimes you know because they or they'll see it as such. Um, and then you've got the flip side of bands that literally don't know the arse from the elbow that's right and they just and they've just written great music and they're like okay what what do we do with this so in in between both of those you've got you know all the other bands the varying degrees of of either so it, it can become quite a balancing act but again that's part of the fun of it um and we've got artists of different ages as well like some are still in their late teens early 20s and some are in their 40s so you know there's definitely a different approach uh, coming from either side depending on the band. I, I see Unique Leader uh, growing year to year. All these fresh new acts, you still have the old acts. It's, it's you guys are going up there. You're going to start challenging, metal, you're, you're at nipping at Metal Blade's heels, in my opinion. Uh, that's big heels to nip at. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I think it, it brings it back um, to uh, the expansion process over the years. You know, Metal Blade, obviously, when... When Brian started it, it was kind of in the same capacity as Eric was doing. Um, but then it takes just just that one band to to really kick off and bring the revenue into the label for the rest of the roster to grow and build a staff and all of that. So, you know, we've had a, a count, you know, I could say like tons of bands on the label that have done really well in terms of like the deal model, you know, like what's what's been put in, what's come back, the longevity of the deal and what have you. But we've not had say a cannibal corpse or a slayer um which is where labels like metal blade have you know taken off and they've evolved into the monsters that they've become or like nuclear blast is another great example um you know at the beginning it was bands like gorefest um you know and i think the big one for for them was dimu borgir and then nightwish and then boom and nightwish was a big step into you know what a lot of the metalheads the elitists the, the 
you know, the beard strikers <laughs> would see as a very naughty signing, you know. So we have to be very careful in that. Um, well, not careful, but it's kind of that decision process and, again, a respect thing to Eric in that, like, we could take the brand in a different direction and we could start signing a lot more melodic stuff and what have you, but I just don't think that's what Eric would have wanted, personally. So we'd, that's the question we always ask as well is, would Eric like this? Um, and if it's like, I could just imagine his toes curling, then the answer's no, you know? That's very, very, very cool and respectful. That's, I, I, I like that you guys do that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's necessary for sure. Uh, let's dance into Viscera. You guys just dropped a new record right at the beginning of the pandemic. You guys were on tour with a bunch of my brothers, and you guys had to come home. You were on the Faces of Death tour with Decapitated, local Montreal boys, uh, Beyond Creation. Tabarnak. Tabarnak. <laughs> my favorite Slam Kings, Ingested, and Lorna Shore. Uh, that was a sick, sick, sick lineup, and you guys are one of the bands, last bands out there during this pandemic, so... Uh, Let's talk about releasing a new record during a pandemic. You talked about a lot of bands had to be pushed. You guys probably have pushed some releases. Uh, how did that all go down? And uh, tell me about that. Uh, well, when we found out about all of the COVID stuff starting up, we were, of course, on tour already. And then the the cancellation was we were on our way back from Glasgow. We were about halfway down the country, um, kind of going past kind of Manchester way. And just the lights went on the bus and I just got a little curtain that came back and the was the uh, the bass player from beyond creation just was like hey dude uh tour is cancelled uh get your shit uh, we're all leaving fucking good time <laughs> just i was like what like what the wait what hang on what shout out to Hugo. yeah <laughs> yeah so everyone's kind of like rubbing their eyes getting out like what really what the fuck no way um because we all just thought it was kind of i'm sure you, i'm sure you know what i mean you sort of disappear into your own little world on tour a little bit don't you like you to see what's going on it's like a like, micro microcosm it a is microcosm a bit, yeah. um so obviously we knew that that stuff was starting to happen but we we thought it would be at least a month or so before shit started getting gnarly um so the tour finishes and then we realized fuck you know even though we're back in the UK our drummer and our guitarist their car was in Germany in Berlin because they drove out with the drum kit and a bunch of other stuff to meet the tour bus to then load up left the car parked in Berlin and it's all, all, all the fun stuff that we have to do when we go on tour that you guys don't know about people so on and so forth so they had to get back on the bus all the way through mainland Europe to Berlin and then drive back knowing that Fuck. the borders were closing so it's like this fucking computer game man like race to the border <laughs> but you know but don't speed because then you get a ticket but you know speed but don't speed um and then before they you know before we, we knew it man it's just like fucking chaos everything was cancelled everything was closed um, yeah, big adjustment, shitty time to release a record for sure. But we did get, I think, nine shows under our belt before the tour was cancelled. Um, and I think we're making up for it now with the Black Dahlia one. So should be cool. Fuck yeah. Uh, how I, I've interviewed other record executive people that have bands and they chose not to sign to their label. So t t t tell me about signing yourself or, <laughs> or convincing. <laughs> Funnily enough, like I, I, this is like, I probably shouldn't say this, but we, we don't actually have like a formal deal in place with the label. We just kind of, it, we're all just friends who decided just to do a band and it was like, okay, how, what's the easiest way to get this out there quickly? And I just looked at it from the point of view of like, the label's already got major label distribution. 
everything that we would essentially need from anywhere else we've already got and there's no you know there's no discussion or you know back and forth process to be had because we can just run it as if we were self-releasing but we just use unique leader as the you know as the vessel and then obviously there's the other side in that i'm a bit cagey in that like i guess it's a control freak thing in that i, I don't want to it's a, it's a really tough one. It's so, in fact, do you know what? It's a really good question. There's so many reasons that we put it through Unique Leader, man. I mean, from the point of view of like brand expansion as well, it's a bit of a risky one to sign a band that's got any kind of melodic singing in it. So I figured if the label's going to take some flack for this, I might as well be at the front of taking the flack because I'm running the label. I've made this decision. I'll take the shit for it. Um, but luckily, fucking touch wood, that didn't actually happen people were actually quite um you know it was a quite a decent response so that doesn't mean we're going to go and sign a bunch of <laughs> you know melodic chorus bands or what have you but um yeah it just made sense to do it man i mean there's so many bands on the label that i'm personal friends with that i'm already finding that we're going to be playing with i mean ingested was a good example um straight off the bat we're out with them and it was you know, it just it just made sense. I don't know, we could have... It probably would have been worth having a discussion with, like, you know, with the sharp tones and uh, nuclear blasts and, and what have you. But I think, to be honest, what what they would have offered, it would have been the same, but we would have just had to hand over a much larger chunk of of our royalties, you know? Absolutely. Yes, yes, I understand completely. Uh, it's always nice to, to, to know what's going on in... You know, have cryptopsy having been independent since 2012. Uh, I understand uh, the game of being independent. Uh, we subsequently have just signed a record deal, which I can't talk about just yet. But uh, I'm stoked about that. So, so when you said that bands don't necessarily need a record label right now, how is that a scary thing? Working for a record label? I, th I think I think they do. I think it just depends on the band's goals, man. It depends on their goals. If they've got like a long existing fan base that's been buying their records for a while, I think a record label is very important because that catalogue's a legacy item. People need to be able to to buy, to buy it and find it. Um, sometimes D to C or, or direct customer shipping um, isn't an option for bands for many reasons. Or if it is an option from a consumer end, it can be very expensive. Uh, you could order from America and shipped to you know to thailand or whatever and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg so that's where the the 20 that you pay the distributor comes in um i think the argument now is is the traditional model of a record deal still relevant to bands um and i would i would argue you know it's not probably in the label's interest to say this but i would say you know it, it's kind of a dead model now um and a lot of the bands that we're dealing with you know i'm reaching out to them when the deals are expiring and saying, look, you know, let's let's do a completely new deal based on the terms that you want moving forward, based on the industry now, rather than the industry in 98 or 2004 or when they signed then, you know. So I, I just treat every case individually. That's the main thing. Knock on wood, this is not the case, but if COVID continues up until into next year and there are more postponements, more concerts being cancelled... Are we going to come to a time where there will be no new music being released because labels are afraid? No, definitely not. They'll, we're we're in a digital age now. You know, streaming 
is 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 a massive thing. Like Twitch is king now. Um, it's just been bought out by uh, I think by Amazon, I believe. Um, I'm seeing stuff like you know virtual tours, virtual concerts. I mean, Suicide Silence just announced a US tour where they're playing uh, one state every day, you know, and they're broadcasting it out to three different cities or four different cities in that state and just those cities. Um, so you know, people are already adapting to the bullshit that's been thrown out, and you know, you've obviously got like the the, the things that um, bands like Code Orange were doing, where they've got like a full on production. And they're streaming to probably, arguably, bigger audiences than they would be if they were uh, playing. And I think ultimately, when the, the gig circuits do come back, this is going to be an opportunity for a lot of people to kind of combine the two. I could see a lot of companies like Live Nation or, um, you know, Kilimanjaro and the bigger promoters jumping on the back of this uh, pay-to-stream thing, almost like a UFC fight or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, if this concert's sold out, you can still see it, but, you know, you pay to stream it in 4K and blah, blah, blah. And That's smart. That's when I'm sure Netflix and Amazon and everyone else will start coming in for music sponsorship deals to broadcast the rights. And we could see a complete, you know, evolution of the way the industry works. Interesting. And then do you think that with that happening, when you're going to want to resign an artist, are you going to be including a live stream clause? Um, again, that falls into... That's a grey area because obviously you've got the performance side of the the music and, and the ownership of the masters and then you've got the, the, the publishing side which, you know, that's the tough one Is and, and a lot of bands don't know the difference between the two uh, and a lot of labels don't know the difference between the two which is which blows my fucking mind is I've, I've spoken to labels who have signed bands um, and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm kicking off with so-and-so artists because they've recorded this live version of this track and they put it on their YouTube and I'm like, take it the fuck down. I'm like, well, do you, you know, do you own the rights to entirely or do you just own the rights to the masters because if you only own the rights to the masters they can do what the fuck they like and he was like oh i'm like really like so i had to sit down and explain this all to him it's like okay you know <laughs> this is kind of like trying to open a bakery without knowing how to make pastry you know so just fucking pay attention to the way the industry's going man this is just what i'm saying and it evolves so quickly now it really is dude like it's crazy i mean and it's always the really good ideas. You're like, fuck, why didn't I think of that? You know, this whole, like, broadcasting a concert, that's such a great idea. I mean, someone's obviously come to, well, I don't know, someone in the band might have thought of it, but someone somewhere has had that light go on. Um, I mean, I personally would use it, man. If I was chilling and I wanted to watch a band live and I knew that so-and-so was in the UK, but maybe they're three hours from where I live and I can't make the show, I'll watch it, you know? I'll pay, I'll pay 10 bucks to watch it. You know, who knows? Crazy times. Jamie, thank you so much for taking some time to sit down with me, share a beer. I really, really greatly appreciate it. Everyone, go check out Unique Leader Records. They got so much great, great fucking shit up there. So many great new artists, old artists. And uh, I'm a fan for life, and I just wish you guys all the best. Cheers. Cheers, brother. <laughs> 
hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. I love doing these spotlight on different record labels. I love that as a part of this, I end up having a conversation with the people that actually run the record label. It is very interesting to uh, go behind the curtain to see how record labels work. It is something that uh, not many people know about, and I hope that uh, you have a little bit more insight on what it's like to run an extreme metal label, especially one at this level. It's a unique leader records is nothing to mess around with. They are uh, one of the best extreme metal labels out there so a huge shout out to uh, jamie thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, hang out with me and uh everyone go check out obsidian the new viscera record which just dropped back in march right before the apocalypse began uh sadly we didn't get to talk enough about that but uh, they do have that sick tour that's happening in europe at the beginning of 2021 Go check it out if you can. It's an absolute rager of a lineup. I hope you guys have a great weekend. I am stoked to uh, relax a little bit after my first week back at work after my vacation. So uh, I'm going to rest. I suggest that you do the same. I'll be back next week with two episodes, one on Tuesday and another on Friday. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hopsheads. <laughs> I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.